What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Or if you are listening to this through default friends Substack feed, welcome to the computer room where it's dark and the monitor is always on. Now, we're back, DF and I, to talk about another essay about early online life. This one is by Humdog, right? That's the alias? Yes. Okay. So this is a pretty fantastic little essay. I read it several times today and it's just been kicking around in my brain as I've been like moving things into a storage unit. It's called Pandora's Vox on community and cyberspace. And it seems straightforward in terms of like, it doesn't deviate from the topic, but it is about the way in which, and we explored this in our last episode together, DF and I, life on the net is a very weird version of life online. And the way that Humdog, who spent a lot of time in this online space and many other online spaces, but we'll stick with this one for now called The Well, which, DF, what is The Well? for the listeners. So home. the well is, I thought was, it actually still exists. <laughs> um, I am, I am default on the, the, the well. It is, it's, if I would to like relate it to something similar to it's, it's, it looks sort of like Reddit and it, it spawned from the whole earth catalog and it stands for, I think like whole earth electronic link. And it's, it's, it's basically just a, a message board and it's separated out into conferences. And if you think of it with the Reddit analogy, the conferences are subreddits and yeah, people just, I mean, it's, it's really, really clunky. It's really hard to navigate. I don't think they've updated it since the early nineties and they, you know, it's just a bunch of hippies in, you know, Northern California, Chicago, and a few other places just, you know, talking about what hippies talk about. Mm-hmm. I think what I love about this piece is that it digs into something that still gets talked about, but not quite enough in terms of how we understand the internet. And it doesn't call it by name, but it's the California ideology. Uh, Richard Barbrook and a co-author wrote an essay on that on Silic- early Silicon Valley. And what Humdog is looking at is how this sort of, let's call it like granola like left libertarian, but also because it has to deal with tech, surprisingly, like maybe business friendly in some ways, community starts to form on well, and well has these different, like, I don't know what to call them. DF would know better than me, but basically like forums, let's say, where you can talk about family, you can talk about relationships, you can make relationships. And a humdog starts to notice interesting things happening around this. So in One instance, there is a man who seems to have been seeing two different women at the same time without either of them knowing on the space while perhaps being married in his real life. And then everybody finds out and there's a meltdown and people, there's talk of even lynching this man. So he's a good West Elm Caleb of the original variety But what's important about that isn't necessarily those interactions in themselves, but that they have to do with the surfaces of how we present online and how those are deviated, delinked from our real life and how you can't assume the same immediate intimacy and knowingness of intimacy that you can in real life online. And another one that she brings up is mother and daughter who talk about their issues, specifically the daughter's issues, which apparently are implicitly suicidal issues, I understand, or perhaps an extreme eating disorder that is veering on that. And the mother who is talking about this ends up consoling everyone that sees themselves in her daughter until it basically becomes so psychically strange, lyric and toxic toxic that it implodes on itself. I've seen things like this before and participated in them shamefully. But again, what's interesting about this is that these are allegedly intimate experiences, Dog points out, where we become the means of production for the companies, CompuServe and America Online in 1994, in this case, that host our ability to have these interactions. 
there is no cyberspace interaction without self-commodification is I think one of the stronger claims that Humdog is going to make here. And so generally uh, what she asks us to pay attention to is the way in which this is all a game of surfaces, right? And she wants to, I wanna get this quote, right? And I'll read this and then I'll stop summarizing it and get into it because there's a lot to talk about here. I haven't even gotten to all of it. But she writes, Western society has a problem with appearance and reality. It keeps wanting to split them off from each other, make one more real than the other, invest one with more meaning than it does the other. There are two people who have something to say about this, Nietzsche and Baudrillard. I invoke their names in case somebody thinks I made this up. Nietzsche thinks that the conflict over these ideas cannot be resolved. Baudrillard thinks that it was resolved, and this is how we come to how come some people think that communities can be virtual? We prefer simulation, simulacra, to reality. Image and simulacra exert tremendous power upon culture. And it is this tension that informs all the debates about capital R real and capital N, capital R not real, that infect cyberspace with regards to identity, relationship, gender, discourse, and community. Almost every discussion in cyberspace about cyberspace boils down to some sort of debate about truth in packaging. So I think I summarized that okay. Now, I had never heard of this essay. So DF, how did you find out about this? So Anne, the, the personality girl, uh, was I think reviewing a book on psychiatry and she sends me this quote from, you know, which I, I find out is from this, this essay. And the, it's, it's the opening line, which is, when I went into cyberspace, I went into it thinking that it was a place like any other place and that it would be a human interaction like any other human interaction. I was wrong when I thought that. It was a terrible mistake. And I was just like, what's this from? And, and neither of us knew. And I, you know, I just, I, I threw it into Google and I, I, you know, I found, I found this essay and I was like, how has this not been on my radar? And then I, you know, I read the essay, I loved it. And then I realized it had been on my radar because this same woman had written for the Alphaville Herald, which was sort of a newspaper for the Sims online. And then later second life. And she wrote a very, she wrote many famous pieces, but the one that I was most familiar with was uh, history of the board hoe, which, mm. you know, is, might be, you know, another piece for another episode, yeah, but great title. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, I, you know, we got, we got to talk about it. If we're going to talk about a rape in cyberspace, we have to talk about Pandora's box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's so much to say about this episode. Can I tell you one thing? I don't even know if this is jumping the gun, but it was bugging <laughs> me the whole time. Yeah. Not bugging me about the piece, right? I so, think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I, oh, I wonder if this lines up. Okay, so, you know, uh, whenever you move things into a storage unit, right, you end up uh, being in some sort of like office park or nearby. You're seeing a lot of offices, right? There's a lot of tall anonymous buildings that remind me of the places I grew up in Midwestern suburbia. And I was thinking about the discussion of the eco-green element of the idea of well, because it comes out of this sort of crunchy granola whole earth catalog thing. And it's the idea that we're gonna get rid of offices and we're gonna get rid of paper and that's going to make this better. I mean, the energy intensity of keeping, you know, huge data banks online is like a huge part of this, but I'm not gonna like nitpick or get into that. What I am gonna say is that I think there's actually a stranger of perhaps a law of conservation of energy that goes on here in terms of the physical infrastructure that we agree that we get used to living in an everyday life. And then it would, when it becomes absorbed into uh, the cyber world. And I was thinking about Bradley Trammell's report on why everything looks like horrible, weird, flat design characters now. And he too talks about Baudrillard and sort of Baudrillard's economy of the sign and how in the original computers, if you had your trash thing, it was because that was symbolizing the trash in your office, just like the file looked like a file. And then eventually you go through enough permutations to where it delinks from its original referent and becomes an icon unto itself, becomes a sign 
unto itself. And I thought, well, if that's true, then I also think that our social lives as well as our work lives have gone through that same process. And that instead of there being these big suburban um, office parks or whatever, these huge places of physical capital, of real estate, we have compressed that into denser, unseen physical areas of data banks and stuff like that, that have their own rules. And that those rules were something that uh, Humdog was super interested in. But that is also why cyberspace is this weird, silent black hole. And so that's what I was thinking about all day. I don't know if that made any sense. It's, it sort of makes sense how it's like, I mean, especially now we don't go into an office. It's, it's so funny that you mentioned this because my friend sent me this article called The Slackification of the American Home, which I think is just about the, the blurring between work and life, by the way, that it's a very, it, it's a very good piece. It's by Taylor Lorenz <laughs> for a little bit of a shout out, but it, you know, I was thinking like, there's also like the slackification of work period. Like mm-hmm. I, my, my office, my, you know, my, my day job, our product and our actual work completely exists within Slack. Slack is the office. That's amazing. Well, that's like that. What did I, I sent you that tweet the other day about that? That was like what it's like to work in a modern office where it's just like, did you get my thing on Google? Like, do <laughs> not upload your pay stub to Splapple without, <laughs> without noose work approval. <laughs> you know? It's like, what the fuck are we talking about? Now? God, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other set of problems, I feel like. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's th- those were the things that I was thinking of. I don't know if that's what you thought I was going to say. Oh, I thought but... you were going to say how she misspells uh, Baudrillard throughout the piece. <laughs> oh, I did notice that, but I actually didn't fault her for that because, well, for a few reasons. One, because of the ending where it's clear that she writes this before she, capital L, capital O, logs off. And then people remind her her directory is up. And that it dawns on her that people are interacting with her without her being there, just as it dawns on them that that's what's happening. And I thought, you know, I have no idea how this piece was preserved. So I'm going to hold my tongue on how this is misspelled. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's very, that's very fair. Uh, so, I mean, where, where should we start? I mean, there's so much, there's, there's just so much here. What, I mean, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll throw something out there. What One piece of, of this article that I really liked is when she talks about hysterical identification. And I just like couldn't help but think like that's completely what all politics are right now. Yep. That's, I mean, there's there's no better time to resurrect this this piece. I mean, there's just, there's so much of it that it's like, you, you could take a, you could take a class on this, on just this essay alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So hysterical identification, she explains, is a mental device that enables one person to take on the suffering of a group of persons. It is something, she writes, that until the 1880s was considered a problem of females. It is clear that that is now a society-wide problem. And I was thinking about that and our last conversation about what the sort of psychic experience of being online is and how that's different than face-to-face interaction, but that it shapes you in ways that are just as powerful. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's something about it that it's, it's, it maybe doesn't have all the same impacts as if you experienced it in real life, but it has some sort of impact. You know, I, I think that I read somewhere that like, if you imagine enough times that something is happening that Mm -hmm. you could take on like some level of trauma as though it actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I wish I remember where I saw this because I think that's, that's some version of what's going on in cyberspace. Like you're, you project this feeling of like with a rape in cyberspace, like, Oh, I was raped. And you don't have the same, you know, perhaps like PTSD you might, if you actually experienced a sexual assault, but you have some sort of emotional connection to that because you've you've imagined that pain so many times that it becomes a type of real pain. 
Yeah, exactly. Or like, I'm thinking about it this way too, because this Joe Rogan thing is happening right now and he's just issued an apology for like things he said on the podcast. Rookie mistake, by the way, Joe, never apologize. I, I can't believe he did that. Yeah, me too. I was just like, fuck, he stepped in the trap. Because the thing is, is this, like the assumption is that that would work like real life, right? That would work like meat space. I have, as somebody who's been through the 12 steps, made amends to people for things that I've done that were grievously wrong and truly made amends, not just said sorry, but been willing and able to make up for these things and, and have been luckily forgiven by people. And I think that is what, when someone releases an apology video like that, thinks is going to happen. It's going to be that type of interaction and it will go away. But the way that it ends up working online is that it creates yet more opportunities to create hysterical identification through, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like uncharitably close reading the apology or something like that, because it will never be enough. As she says in this piece, the reason that we think of the internet as utopia is because it's literature. We can constantly edit and change the narrative. There's nothing set experientially in stone, though plenty is recorded forever. Which is so, which is so scary. And that's, I had never, I had never thought of it that way myself. Like there's nothing, like anything could be recontextualized, any oh, conversation. Yeah. And you, you see this happening in like a lot of different ways. And like, so, you know, suddenly it starts to make a lot of sense. Like my favorite example of this is like, and I'm so sorry if I mentioned this in the last episode, I'm just like obsessed with it, is like this thing where, you know, people will fall in love with someone online and then they go back and they look, you know, they look at the chats and they realize that they projected a connection that isn't actually reflected in the text. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just, their emotions were, were coloring how they were interpreting it and had nothing to do with something that another person was doing. And of course, of course, like how could it, there's no body language like there anything that could be there to help you understand what someone means is gone like there's some idea that there's like an energy there but that energy doesn't actually exist the energy is different you know depending on who's reading it and when they're Mm -hmm. reading it no absolutely i mean i was thinking about this today when i was listening to the new thinkery and they were talking about plato and you know all those are dialogues and they're trying to figure out the emotional states of the characters. And then I was thinking about this essay in light of that. And I was like, this is what going through an old forum is like that has like severe link rot or something where it's like, uh, what is What was happening here? What was the nature of this conversation? What was at stake? I mean, I think that's sort of the terror of sort of the uh, Boris Groys, the art critic, has a thing about this, about sort of the world after WikiLeaks, where there is this tick for greater transparency over everything. And that that becomes this compulsion almost to find out what's under the surface as more and more simply becomes surface. You, you sort of, you sort of see people trying to correct for this though. I mean, I definitely think that like the, you know, sort of low hanging fruit example, like TikTok and podcasts, and even to like some extent YouTube, I think are like an attempt to like solve for this, but so is the live journal, you know, thing of putting what song you're listening to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Mike, I've told you about this. I texted you this while I was at the gym where I was like, I've made a career out of live journaling. That's actually what I do. I just like live journal about energy politics now, (laughs) you know, like that's, that's the way in which these things deeply shape us and the ways in which they shaped Humdog, right? She has all these perspicacious insights into the nature of online life that feel way ahead of their time, which is something I want to ask you about in a second, that feel way ahead of their time. And she fell prey to them herself. In the obituary we read, it's implied that she may have indeed sort of committed suicide over an online relationship gone very bad. One not unlike the relationship between the man and the two women, where they project onto his sign what they want out of him without there ever being an explicit agreement. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's so it it you get like such a myopia when you're online a lot, um, and things feel like very serious and like it's serious in the way like when you're you know a teenager and everything feels very serious. And I think it's mm-hmm. because there's nothing that pulls you out, and it just becomes all, no matter what it is, it's just like all consuming, and there's no way to gauge like this you know this is or isn't important because it's just not you you have to do so much filling in the blanks Mm -hmm. it's just like watching a movie yeah exactly i mean so let me ask you this this is another thing i kept thinking about while reading this is like obviously there are people like sherry turkle who are standouts and you're a big fan of hers a devotee even but it seems like for most of our lives as far as i can remember most of my adolescence, no one had like a critique of the internet. The internet was fine. The thing that you were trying to do was not make it worse by letting the government spy on you or whatever. But this sort of gives the lie to that entire like almost 10, 15 year period I remember in my life. Like what happened there? Between like, in, between the, the 90s and- the Yeah, between 2000s. the 90s and like the early 2000s, like whence came this- optimism that's a good question i you know i think that there is a lot of optimism generated sort of like during the app and sort of this idea that like twitter can help bring democracy to the middle east and you know there there's a whole whole variety of like cliche you know cliches that get mm-hmm. thrown around i don't think it's necessarily true that no one was critiquing cyberspace i think a lot of people were thinking about it but i think it was this thing of like not enough people you know, we're engaging with it until really until, um, you know, face like after Facebook's peak is when I think, mm. you know, around 2013, like our, you know, our favorite, <laughs> our favorite years, our like favorite every, year. Yeah. yeah everyone, <laughs> you know, it, at this point it's, it's in everybody's life. And even because I feel like even sort of in like the Tumblr, like Buzzfeed sort of era, it was still sort of like limited to millennials and like my mom, mm-hmm. you know, didn't necessarily have like, she wasn't necessarily as plugged in. But like by the time you get to 2013, that's when the explosion of, you know, everyone, everyone's online at this point. And, that, and that's when you start getting the, the, yeah. the piles of, of think pieces. Right, right. And then 26 changes a lot too. But we've talked about how it also obscures some of what's actually going on, the way that people reacted to that, especially like the info hazard stuff. I'm also wondering if, I mean, obviously part of it's just being younger then. And so it's hard to remember what the critiques of society are when you're young and not totally aware. And also, you know, you, you, you can't, you can imagine dying maybe, but not staying dead. That's a big feature of being much younger. So when, when I look at this piece, when I look at what a hum dog is saying, I was trying in my head to sort out, like, what's the difference between cyberspace and like a town? So clearly in a town, you're always going to have some sort of commercial enterprise. That's just going to happen. People trade, they make things, blah, blah, blah. But there's also all sorts of other things that happen there. Like maybe this is my old like lefty color showing, but I was like, what's weird about cyberspace is that it's like just strictly from the outset, like pretty commercial the way that uh, Humdog talks about it. And by that, I mean, like you are the product and you are selling yourself no matter what type of interaction you have, you're having, or perhaps even where you're having it. Yeah. But even in, even if all your interactions are like with your friends or in DMS, you're still the, you're still selling access to yourself, even if it's to people, you know, in real life, there's no, there's no sense in which there's like private moments no not at all and one of the things that seems to have changed is the way in which like through the algorithms skynet has become self-aware so to speak you know these major platforms have uh ways of making you talk you know i was talking with a friend today you know ian Corey. he's been a guest on the show about how i have trained my youtube algorithm to recommend really good typo negative bootlegs to me 
And I just thought about how strange it was to say something like that. Not the typo negative bootleg stuff. I've been interested in that since I was like 14, but like the, I trained the algorithm to do this. First of all, like the optimism that that is the one way direction that that relationship works, <laughs> right? <laughs> like the hubris even to think of it that way. But also that that is how I interact with media I am aware that there's this black box that produces this thing that shapes my life and that I send out weird signals and hope that it catches on and gives me sometimes even what I didn't know I desired. I mean, that that's the thing that freaks people out about TikTok, right? Like it its algorithm can't... is so fucking powerful, yeah. man. It's so <laughs> freaky. That's what it's drives. Anybody can make a video platform. It's their algorithm that's freaky. I mean, what's, what's interesting about it too, I mean, not to totally veer off topic here, but TikTok's algorithm is so good that now people use it for, I mean, well, not, not even now, but for a long time, people use it for psychic readings because it, the, the logic is if it could, you know, if it could guess that you're, you know, thinking about having a child or that you want broccoli or something, then surely this is a perfect use case for tarot card readings. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. So I don't know if you saw this article, but I think it came out in the New York Times or something. I saw this clip, this screenshot that was that was drifting around my Twitter timeline about how, and this goes back to Humdog, Amazon, there was some sort of device or thing you could buy on Amazon that would make it, would help you kill yourself. And then the algorithm basically figured out what things people bought with that and would recommend them to people when they bought them, thus making it easier for them to kill themselves. I saw that. And I thought, you know, this is really like, it's really like the conbonification of like suicide and mental illness because what was fascinating to me about Humdog's story is that after her relationship with this guy on Second Life goes south, she deletes all of her accounts and then it seemingly stops taking her heart medication and her heart stops. And I thought, you know, it's amazing how much this is like administered for us now. But, and it's also like this weird, like, if you die on the internet, you die in real life feeling. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's weird because I, I think about this a lot in sort of terms of like people getting ousted from groups, like not, not like large scale, like cancellations, like what's happening to like Joe Rogan or whatever, but like, sure. you know, I mean, there's, there's one person who I like kind of think about in this way a lot and everyone will know who I'm talking about once I describe, but you know, if, if it's like you're a figure in like a certain online subculture and then either like you do something wrong or you just become persona non grata for like no reason and then it's like who's mm -hmm. like who are you talking to anymore like there's mm -hmm. no there's sort of no recovering from that like there's no you can't, it's you can't really shape shift it's it like it it kills you to be like yeah, you run out of lives. Yeah, I guess I did not describe that person so specifically. I'm actually thinking. I was, I was about to say. I was just like, I can think of at least ten. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was gonna. I was gonna add more detail, and I was like, don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> don't open that kind of words. But I, you know, it's just self. Speaking of self preservation, but it's like there's no like people say like, oh, you could just spin up a new account, but like you can't actually because you know, like for example, like Humdog had several different screen names and then she was also she was Carmen in real life and all of those were her like it's actually not as easy to just like spin up a new person and like to go back to a rape in cyberspace like he was like he was still recognized the the rapist was still recognizable as his new you know his new avatar mm -hmm. they're actually like once once you're you're pushed off you're really dead in that in that space like there is no there isn't like this infinite ability to be immortal. You're not, you're only immortal insofar as people can like rifle through your stuff for as long as they like. But otherwise it's like, once once you, once the gates are closed on you, they're closed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And 
what's fascinating about the Humdog case is sort of the BDSM element. And I guess we'll get into the Slaves of Gore stuff here in a second. But I want to do a callback to an early Patreon episode on Exhaust. I was telling you about this before we reported. It's all Channel 4 documentary, Visions of Heaven and Hell. You can find Visions of Hell the second part of it on YouTube, and it features interviews with a very, very young Nick Land. It's from about the same time that this article was published, and it ends up being a very prescient documentary about what a globalized, highly digital society is going to be like. And it has, I think, some very savvy concerns about privacy, about a transparency, about intimacy, all of the things that are still buzzword topics for us today. But there's this really fascinating series of interviews with people who, it feels quaint, right? It's interviewing people who've met online, but interviewing them in person as a group that are all into kink stuff. And there is this incredible optimism about what the online world is going to offer people who are into kink because it is, or was riskier to talk about that. It was harder to find people like that. And the internet was a great facilitator because especially then you were highly anonymous for finding other people that were into the same thing. And then you start to realize like what has made community on the internet. And it has largely been people who are interested in very specific things, looking for ways to find each other. BDSM is one of those things. Kayaking might be another, in other words, marketing demographics. And it is easy to see now in hindsight what began as I'm sure an incredibly relieving experience. And the people in the interview describe it as such, where they finally find people who understand them, who they can speak to, where they don't have to feel ashamed. What feels liberatory was actually a step into a different kind of cage. I mean, this this goes back to, speaking of, of the well, deadheads pretty much built the well. Mm-hmm. Which makes were, sense because they were some of the first cyber utopians, right? Like Adam yeah. Curtis talks about that in hypernormalization. They, you know, it's, fans are really the infrastructure of the internet. But one thing I've wondered is like what it is about the internet that like, there really is like no sort of, there, there really is no element of freedom. Like everything we kind of hate about people gets amplified online and at every stage of the internet. <laughs> Hell is other accounts. It, I mean, it kind of is. I yeah. mean, there's <laughs> like at every stage of internet history, it's all the stuff we hate about society today. Like, you know, very like stringent worldviews, the in-group, out-group shit, cancellations. I mean, just like everything, like, decontextualization you know there's every every single thing that bothers us is just so it's just broadcast at you know the volumes turned up to 14. yeah well i i i agree with that i think in trying to think about what makes it different you put something up on your twitter as somebody i think maybe it was marshall McLuhan was talking about paying too much attention to the content of what media was and not enough of its form, which I thought was a very savvy paragraph that you shared. And it got me thinking about this piece. And I remembered it while you were talking about this, where I was like, yeah, what does make the internet different? Like why it has everything we hate. And I was like, well, of course, like the content is people. And like people are, that's the same content there's ever been in society. It's just people, you know? So that it has to be the form. And I guess the form is part of what Humdog is looking at here. And I think what's different about it is the, is the frictionlessness, is the reduction of barriers. We're used to all of the things we've just talked about in terms of human content existing with some sort of frictive elements, some sort of barriers, whether there be the shame of being too loud in public, a shame as a Midwesterner, I feel all the time, you know, (laughs) or whatever, you know, something like that, that would bar you or exclude you or cost something upon entry. And the internet in many ways obviates a lot of that, just gets rid of 
what that is. And now what we're really trying to do is figure out what form brings in the types of order that we have basically had handed down to us forever that can be put into the content of this new paradigm. No, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I think you're right. I, you know, I think again of the opening of this essay where she, she says, I realized this wasn't a place like any other when people mm-hmm. started addressing me as he, and they just assumed I was a man. Not being able to like assert yourself is who you are and then having, realizing you have this sort of like unlimited optionality for like who you get to be must also be like another another piece of that puzzle. And not even like the introduction of like real names on social media has really has really changed that because you could always, you know, you could stay, to, you could stay anon, you could lie about your identity. I remember like when it seemed, it seemed to be like, in recent history, like catfishing was like such a, <laughs> was such a like epidemic concern. Oh, and now yeah. no one even thinks about it anymore. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, uh, I just had, I just had a thought about, about that. And then I got sucked into the catfishing thing. And I was thinking about that poor college football player who had that whole scandal break out around him because he had totally gotten catfished by some online account and said it was his girlfriend, like live on air or something like that. <laughs> Just was so it brutal. The Monte Teo thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So brutal, man. I felt for that guy. I was like, oof, oof, man. Oh yeah. Just in terms of like anonymity and, and what that might give you, you know, a thing that I've never stopped thinking about since I heard it, Maybe this will out me for somebody who grew up in a very like typical NPR listening household is an episode of This American Life, I think. And for some reason, the topic was like, would you rather be, would you, would you rather have the ability to be invisible or to fly? And it was asking people, this is right when NPR was making content that I would like actually want to listen to, because I think that's a very interesting question. And, you know, people had all sorts of uh, fun, funny, thoughtful answers. And then the last woman interview was a friend of Ira Glass's. He was, he was doing the interviews and she said something so, so thoughtful. I've held onto it all of these years. And it, I've, it's the, through, the prism through which I've mostly thought about the internet. And she said, I want to be the type of person I wish I was the type of person who would say, I want the ability to fly. She says, but I don't think I'm confident, confident enough to want that ability. She says, the real person I am is a person who wants to be invisible. She's like, because I have guile. And I want to be able to look without anyone looking at me. And I want to basically have this epistemic edge over everyone else whenever I want so that I can feel safe. To want to be able to fly is to assume you're already safe. That's, I, like, I mean, that's great. Yeah, I was like, well, that's the fucking internet right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, like this whole like, fucking time. You know? The thing that I kind of wish that Humdog brought up, you know, speaking of that is like, you know, she talks a lot about how you know, it's constantly where when you're posting online, you're sort of performing whether you you know it or not, and you're commodifying yourself and you become entertainment in either in the present or for later, you know, whether you're there or not alive or not. But she doesn't really talk about people who are just consuming and not performing at all themselves. She doesn't talk about lurkers, which I wish she did sort of explicitly lay out. Like what of, you know, isn't there like some crazy number on Twitter where it's like, like 90% or something of of that site is just people lurking. It's like, it's some insane. Yeah, it's wild. It's, I mean, to think about that. I mean, lurkers are like the subaltern, like counterfactual of online <laughs> life, you know? It's like, can the lurker speak? Because it none of it works without them, you know? Yeah, this is, I, I, I feel like this, <laughs> I'm just doing a stream of consciousness thing of this whole episode, but I, you know, I was thinking like, I, so I haven't always posted online. Like mm-hmm. I, most of my online, exi- I have like, you know, like these like blips on the radar where I post a lot or like, I'm really into like an MMO or something, or, you know, I'm really into like tweeting 500 times a day or something. But most mm-hmm. of my online existence, I've been a lurker and I've always like self-identified as like, you know, extremely online. Mm-hmm. And I realized like on Twitter specifically, there's this thing of like, oh, this guy just came out of nowhere and, you know, old heads don't know who he is. 
And the implication there is you can't be extremely online if you're not actively posting, which I think is really interesting mm -hmm. and a huge change from like the, you know, any earlier perception. It's like, that can't, that can't be right. That has to be like a, a you know, a, just some weird rule enforcement that just like, isn't true. But it, it's like, as though, you know, like you have to, I think on Twitter, especially there's this like weird enforcement of like, you could be a low B anon. In fact, that's like preferred in certain communities, but you have to be present enough so so people can determine whether or not they approve you as in group or out group. You can't just be like in the shadows, you know, not, you know, an account with zero, you know, zero followers, zero following or something. And your your display name is just a period, right? You have mm -hmm. to to be like considered very online, you have to be contributing. There has to be reciprocity, which feels again, just so, so wrong. Like who is this approving body? I mean, it's, it's, it's the mass, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's the shadow, but that's, I mean, it's the big other. Yeah. That's, that seems like such bullshit. And I'm sure, you know, anyone listening to this who might be like in one of those subcultures be like, Oh, that's not right. But it, I mean, it's like, it certainly is because like you have people like, you know, who post once and they say the wrong thing and suddenly it's like they're you know they're they're diminished like there is an in-group out-group dynamic which is there is like an approval process which i think is really is really strange if you think about it with lurkers i understand if you're posting a lot and you get ousted that's that's one thing but yeah to police the, the shadow is a, quite another well i wonder if this isn't part of what Humdog was warning about was the way in which we would end up internalizing the features of cyberspace, which we would over ascribe to the sign, which we would, you know, the, the way in which the algorithm becomes part of us. And part of that is that it needs content to sort. And so you also have to be sorting the content that gets put out there if you're on there. And that's how people figure out where you're at and whether you're part of the group or not. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally true. And it's, it's not just true in sort of this, like, you know, on like a philosophical level, like I, I was reading last night, like digital dementia is a thing. Oh, tell me about that. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, I, I like had no idea what this was. I found this like thing, this, I, it's like, I found like some printer paper stapled, right? Like I have no idea what the fuck this, this is. Hell yeah. And I realized, I realized after the fact, it was like some anarchist zine that I had like found somewhere and printed out, <laughs> but it had, it had like all this stuff about like social media. And then they're like, like halfway through, there's something about like digital dementia, which is when you, you let computers do too much for you, mm. you, you develop like early onset dementia, but it's because you're not you're not working, you're not working certain skill sets enough. And like ways to combat that is like, you know, like the expected things, like don't always use a calculator or read paper books or like do stuff with your hands a lot. And then you could be on online as much as you want, but as long as you're, you're regrounding yourself enough in the real world, that's fine. But I thought it was really interesting. I mean, it's in the, the DSM. Like I didn't, it's, it's, it's pretty established and you like never hear about it. Wow. That is I mean, that's really something, right? Like, so Kantbot does this thing where he, he loves talking about now, he's basically doing library science, as I understand his project, where he's paid careful attention to the way in which the internet, and this is part of what I was talking about with all the, the like probably incoherent office parks thing earlier, was really just like an outgrowth of something as simple as like the file cabinet system. It's really just that, you know, like we call it a computer in English. I think the French were right. They call it the ordering machine. Like that's what it does. You know, it enforces an order on different things. It doesn't just compute them. And our minds are not machines, but they have ordering faculties. In fact, ordering is a huge part of our social existence. And what we can say is like this humdog piece is an early look at the new disorder that cyberspace is bringing to social interaction. And now it's, now it's everywhere. It's no yeah. longer just among the nerds. 
Yeah. And now it's everywhere. I mean, that's what was uh, fascinating to me about the second life thing. So I like, it dawned on me while reading this piece and through getting um, to know you and a few other people that like, I have had like a very pedestrian, extremely online life. And I actually thought until the metaverse came out that like second life didn't exist anymore. Oh no. I don't know why I thought that. And then I watched, like, I read like a whole thread from somebody who works at second life about like the metaverse is just trying to do a shitty version of what we're doing. And I was like, that's true. That seems manifestly true to me. And the fact that Humdog gets, creates basically this Island that is built to look like ancient France, like medieval France or something like that in second life. And there is this whole like Gorian slave play role playing playing thing that's a huge part of this plot that happens there I was like this is really a world like Which, unto itself by the way it's so interesting so now like it's an eye avatar it's in this weird like anarchist zine I I found like just in my house <laughs> still just like wow like what the fuck it's probably just like drunk and, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> this shit looks fire prince <laughs> Seriously though, but anyway, it's but it's I it's referenced a lot as like most of what text-based role-playing online is like to this day, and like most of like what happens on like in Second Life role plays as well. But there's mm-hmm. no like academic analysis of it. Like I just typed it, in, and maybe I haven't like searched enough, but I typed it on like academia.edu and, and JSTOR and a couple of other places, mm-hmm. and like. All you get really are like blog posts about uh, blog posts that are people talking about Humdog talking about her experience, but you don't, there's not really, there's not really a lot of analysis on it, which is so weird because it's like, there's so many people engaging in it. And when you think about like the amount of literature that exists on like Dungeons and Dragons that existed, uh, you know, about D&D, like back in the 70s when it was really early and people were still deciding what the rules are it's like incredible that this has just gone completely like uncracked yeah and just so listeners know like what we're talking about is entire online communities based on a fandom really based on uh, a series of sci-fi novels that involve sex slaves as a foundational element of its society Call the site is called Gore. I think the first novel is called Slaves of Gore is by a guy named John Norman. And whoever's stewarding his estate or whatever, by the way, please put in the Amazon what order they're supposed to go in. I was <laughs> like just trying to figure out what the books were about by reading their like back blurbs. And I was like, I have no idea what order these go in. So please fix that because Kat's absolutely right. There's like nothing on this. And it's clear from the obituary that this whole world of there being people who become each other's sex slaves or enslave themselves to a master in these like online world spaces has a deep and expansive history in sort of the, I don't, I don't want to say like underbelly, but like the caverns of the internet. I mean, you know, it, it's so interesting is, so I have like very, I was like a power user of the Sims online and then later second life in this like 2002 to 2008. It was like a, like a chunk of my, my childhood. And this is so, I love this because I was just playing Diablo <laughs> 2 and Starcraft and like what you were doing sounds way cooler than uh, that. So, you know, and just to like drive this point home, I know a lot of people think I'm like 40 or 35, like I'm still in, like, I'm firmly in my twenties. Like, <laughs> so I was like literally a child when this was going on. And I, like, I have these vivid memories of like people talking about collaring and, you know, this master slave dynamic happening, especially on the Sims online. And it must have been gore. And then, and then, you know, when I think about it, when I think about how many other people in my my age cohort who were on these games like so prematurely and like in Yahoo chat rooms and stuff who then migrated to Tumblr where you have mm-hmm. like the the nymphette and like daddy little girl shit and it, there is no way that the sort of Lana Del Rey expression of BDSM that became so popular online is not a direct I know a lot of people are gonna say no it's 50 shades of gray but that was kind of late I actually think it's a direct descendant of this and we yeah. <laughs> we don't talk about it at all. No. Okay. So you know what this is? I was thinking about this because I was thinking about 
the fact that this is a, this huge like fantasy novel world this gore world and i was thinking about i've been slowly because i've been so busy researching other things um making my way through gene wolf's book of the new sun and what i love about that sci-fi series is that the world is very old it's one part of sort of like the in the old earth vein of sci-fi i tend to like that but you don't find out things about the world until you're deep in them like there's not a lot of exposition is what i mean and so at some point it becomes clear to you that there are these people who go down and mine things, but what they're doing is basically like going into the big trash pile that sits on the entire crust of the earth almost and pulling things out from older eras and that that is what mining is. Okay. That is basically, I think, what you and I are interested in, in terms of this old foundational stuff to the culture of the internet that is like lost in the genealogy. Yes. And that the internet has created this old earth problem of genealogy making and understanding. That is the difficulty or one of the many difficulties of creating the history of culture and the internet. Well, also the internet is so big too, which is the other, which is, you know, another big part of this. Like I, I regularly have guests on who are like, you know, they might have like 20 Twitter followers or something, but they have 500,000 on YouTube. And I realized like, mm-hmm. we're from different worlds. Like I'm, you know, I'm from France and you're from Germany. Like, it's just like, it's totally, you know, there's some basic sense of like, we're both in Europe, but we're, I mean, that was a really strange analogy to use, but I mean, it really is crazy how these geographies are so different. And oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. You need to like do the work of like each and every space because it just so much is get, getting lost. And like there's no clear idea of like what's influencing what, which is really, I mean, and then you have this added problem uh, that I've noticed like lately. There's a lot of like, I think like everybody woke up to the fact that like a lot of our internet reporting has been very much like what's trendy, what's happening now, what's going to generate clicks. And now there's a lot of like, sort of like jockeying to like fill in the blanks, but Mm -hmm. people either like don't have the time or the interest to really like marinate in the material. There's all sorts of misinformation going on right now too, which just further complicates it. Cause like, what, like, where are the sources? Like, what do you, like, what do you use? A lot of archives just disappear. People delete stuff. Things are Mm -hmm. difficult to search. Uh, Stuff's paywalled, you know, stuck in academia. As academia changes, there's all sorts of issues there. It's just like, it's a mess. It's really a mess. Yeah, it's, oh man, the thing, the thing that worries me the most, oh, this is going to be some weird, some like, please think of the children shit. So I'm going <laughs> to apologize ahead of that. But I really, I think about like, I talked about this last time, just like kids on the internet being like totally unsupervised and shit. And that like, that is a place where they just get like patterned by these desires of big capital and all sorts of other things out there. But that what really, really worries me, and I don't have like apocalyptic visions of this. I think it'll be much, much slower, perhaps an interruptible process. I don't know, is the way in which even the analog past will start to become more and more impossible for us, more and more difficult for us to envision in the same way that our own internet past is difficult to envision. And I think that that will take a much longer time, but I think that's because eventually everything will have its own phantasm in cyberspace. I think it's already happening. I mean, the sort of like canary in the coal mine here is you google is unusable now if you don't already google sucks if you don't know if you don't know where to find something or like you haven't figured out a good workaround you're you're fucked like we like and the thing is like it's not enough to just buy paper books because you need to know which paper books to buy yeah i know this is okay so this is another thing i do i i Whenever I'm researching something, I go through the bibliography and the works cited at the end, and I put in all the things that I've starred 
into Amazon and I go through Amazon and see who blurbed those books. And then I go like, look up their academic biography and then I see what they did. And maybe I try to look at a couple papers and eventually I like create a list of further reading from that because that's the only way that I can like figure out what the next thing is supposed to be. And it is a way in which I can figure out how to fast track certain things by feeding that into the Amazon algorithm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how it's done. I, I think like one of my very first advice columns, like, God, I can't believe it was two years ago at this point. I was asking this woman who wrote on tarot, like, how's your shit so deep? And like, it's so, it's so good for a topic that's so filled with just like utter bullshit, like unlike any other topic in the world. And Mm -hmm. she's like, all you really need, you need to find one really good book, look at the bibliography and go from there. That's all you need. And she's like, I hope that I'm that bibliography for some people. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's, I mean, it's the same, basically like if you were a record store nerd or especially if you were like someone interested in poetry, who's growing up in the middle of nowhere, like you already know this trick, you go straight to the liner notes or you go straight to the acknowledgements. That's how you find out what the next thing you're going to read or listen to is. You know, and I think that that's going to be the way it goes through that continues. There are going to be these analog tricks, but even still, like, I really do hope that you, especially you, because I know you and I want you to be insanely successful, break through and do shift some of the broader, like public understanding of how we think about these things, because I feel like some sort of bill is coming due and we won't even notice when it happens, it will just happen. And I don't even know entirely what that means, but I do feel like we're in a threshold moment of what our online lives are going to mean for the next 10, 20 years. I mean, I think where it's already here, like another example, you can't, like we were just talking about the well, the well was you know, pretty influential. It wasn't huge. It wasn't huge just because not a lot of people were, you know, were online at that time, but like, there's like 600 page books written about it, right? Google the well, and then, you know, add any number of things. There's a Wikipedia page, but like, you can't find anything else on it. And it's just because Google sucks now. And that like Google being that so bad, that's something that like, there's entire books written about Mm -hmm. it. Like you can't find a summary of the book, for example, like the virtual community does not come up when you Google the well, right? So like that alone, like that's, that's it. (laughs) Man, man. I mean, this is the, you know, I'm thinking that you and I should keep doing this. We should keep trying to find like foundational essays about old internet or deep internet history and things like that and talk about them because I'm learning a lot from these and it's starting to sort of reshape how I approach it because my whole life is is online now as like an energy analyst, not analyst. I, can't, I, don't, I don't know what a fucking number is as an energy <laughs> guy or whatever the fuck I am, you know? <laughs> the energy um, guy. Trademark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it it's a thing that gives me critical distance from the space that I engage in every single day, which I think is necessary to survive in cyberspace. I think that's where we should we should end it. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Stay safe out there. ไปแพมอรกบองสดำโศกโคฉลองฉลายนั้นตึกเพียงโกกรึงโกกรึงกระหมจริยงเรียบเรียงจีเรื่องมวยแสนสรอนอง
งจุงจมได้นาสไรนัวหลงเรียมใบตรอกองชาวกาวชอวีกรอสามกรอสากรมนีตีปูมาอ้อยรอดมันนีอาจันดาสมเลงตึงเพลียงจีเอียงสอนดอมบอมเปียรอมกูเตียงเทวหาซ้ำซีรีได้ประดามทวานิหายเฮสนาสนาอนาคนนิหายเวสนาสนาอนาคต